Hey there and welcome to episode number 077 of the Food as Medicine show with Dr. Ann, the place to be for real talk with real people and real results so you can heal yourself naturally. I'm your host, Dr. Ann, and I'm a board-certified pharmacist and functional medicine practitioner who finds and fixes the root cause of chronic conditions, specializing in gut health. If you need help with your nutrition, food sensitivities, and healing your gut, you can book an appointment with me at drann.com slash work, and Ann is spelled A-N-H as in healthy. I hope you are enjoying your week so far. I'm feeling so much better now, even though I might not sound better, but my cough has pretty much subsided, and right now I'm just working through regaining my voice and nursing my sore back muscles from all the coughing, and I hope to be much better by next week and uh, plan to be taking it easy over the next few days as I go to Hanoi, Vietnam, and then after that, as I mentioned in the last episode, I'll be going to a 10-day meditation class in the middle of May, so hopefully that will give me some time to relax and rejuvenate as well. After that, I was planning to go to Bali, but I'm going to cancel that or delay that. Um, I'm so exhausted from traveling and, you know, you can see that I got so sick from traveling and just such a hectic schedule that I'm just going to slow it down a little bit for the next several months and extend my trip in Vietnam so then I can take time to just get some work done and relax and rejuvenate before continuing on my travels. So definitely stay tuned for more updates, especially in June, uh, for, for some new and exciting things going on with the podcast community. Now, before we get to the episode, I want to let you know that the opinions expressed on this show may not represent my opinions, and the show is for general information only, not a substitute for medical care. So prior to beginning any new health program, I recommend you consult with a qualified health professional. In today's episode, I chat with Dr. Rita Marie, who is another repeat guest on the show, and she is a licensed doctor of chiropractic with certifications in acupuncture, nutrition, herbal medicine, and heart math, and she specializes in digestion, thyroid, adrenal, and insulin imbalances. She spent the last 20 plus years of clinical practice developing systematic ways of looking at the body and cracking even the most difficult health cases. In that time, she's learned valuable shortcuts that guide you directly to the root cause of your client's issues faster and more effectively than you ever thought possible. In Dr. Rita Marie's experience, insulin resistance is the underlying cause of more than 50% of the health cases that she sees. If you are a holistic healthcare practitioner interested in becoming the go-to practitioner in your field and helping even the toughest cases, make sure you check out the webinar replay available only until May 6th, which is this Friday, at drritamarie.com slash go slash insulin. And her practitioner training, which is available at insulin resistance practitioner.com and all the links and resources mentioned today will be in the show notes at drand.com slash 077 now in today's show with dr rita marie we talk about the four b's that indicate that you have a problem with insulin resistance functional lab ranges and what your fasting blood glucose your a1c and fasting insulin should be to ensure optimal health and vitality the goal fasting blood sugar level that she has her clients shoot for to reset their insulin resistance. What is LADA and when and in whom does it occur? 
What supplements she recommends to help people increase their insulin sensitivity so that they don't need to use willpower to overcome sugar cravings, the factors involved in improving a person's insulin resistance, and more. All right, let's go chat with Dr. Rita Marie. Welcome, Dr. Rita, Rita Marie, to the show. Thank you so much, and for Dr. Ann, for having me back. I'm excited to be here, and I love talking about this topic um, because not a lot of people are talking about it. It's more and more people are hearing about it these days, but it's a topic that's so important to the overall health of a person, and it's often missed as we go look at the more sexy things to talk about, like, oh, how, why am I having hot flashes, or right. why... You know, or am I having, you know, other kinds of issues and people overlook this issue of insulin resistance, which I think is at the heart of so many of the complex cases that we as practitioners see day to day in our practices, right? Like it's not just in the, like the olden days where simple things came, oh, do this and do that. And it's real easy. A lot of folks are actually doing a lot of really good work. They've heard about um, eating whole foods and organic and no GMOs and drinking water and maybe going gluten-free or all those things, and those things aren't working for them. And that's where I started to really look deeper. And I realized that what I'd been doing for all my years in practice, I've been doing in practice for 25 years, seeing people with really challenging cases. But what I realized is that I always kind of started with digestion and blood sugar, Mm -hmm. like those went hand in hand and they're kind of like the core of everything because if your digestion's a mess obviously you're not going to be absorbing the nutrients that the body needs to heal right Mm -hmm. and if your insulin is out of balance which means that your blood sugar is out of balance and your body's not able to take the good nutrients that you've got and your digestion might have put them into the bloodstream but insulin is what gets it into the cells so between digestion and insulin you're getting the food from here Mm -hmm. the nutrients that you're taking from here actually into the cells themselves mm-hmm. so you have to have both of those working so that's why i thought it was so important to do a, a program on it and the program i'm doing is for practitioners of all sorts to teach them how to focus on and how to identify when the person that they're working with has something out of balance in the area of insulin and then what to do to restore balance Awesome. Yeah, I, I love that. You know, I, I'm leaning towards a focus on digestion because we both know why it's so important. But I agree with you. Insulin is the other missing piece as a foundation for health. So if you have, a, if you have somebody who says, well, I don't have a history of diabetes in my family. Why should we even worry about insulin? Like, how do you respond to that? Like, you know, and what are some symptoms that, t- that indicate a person might have some sort of insulin resistance going on? Okay, here's one that um, probably 60% of the population has, excess belly fat, Hmm. right? They, the, one of the key um, hallmark symptoms or signs of insulin resistance is when the waist-hip ratio is off, mm-hmm. right? So in men, if the waist is bigger than the hips or, yeah, the waist is bigger than the hips, then that's a sign of insulin resistance. <laughs> For females, if the waist is 80% or more of the measurement of the hips, then that's a sign. So we see a lot of people. In fact, I even see it in teenagers when my son was on the swim team, right? You can see teenagers' bodies when they're in swimsuits, and they'd have these beautiful muscular shoulders and really stout, strong legs, and then they'd have 
belly fat and like these guys even with bellies hanging over their bathing suits. Mm. And I'd be in shock and really where it's affecting people younger and younger. So that's one sign. Another sign might be that the person feels tired mm. and maybe been diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome, mm-hmm. but nobody looked to see if it's actually a blood sugar imbalance. Mm-hmm. Right? Brain fog. How many people do you have that come to you and say, I just can't think straight. I can't remember where I put my keys. I can't remember why I went to that room. Mm-hmm. It's that short-term memory issues and that fogginess, that inability to focus. And a lot of folks have that. And I'm not saying that every case of that mm. is related to insulin resistance, but I like to look at it as the, the, the four Bs, right? Belly fat, brain fog, burnout or fatigue, and blood sugar imbalance, and they come together. And if you've got th- those three, likely that the underlying cause is the fourth one the blood sugar imbalance. So that's why I like to dig, but also folks with more serious illnesses, because there's a progression that happens as a result of the damaging effects of both the high blood sugar and the excess insulin in the system that causes things like cancer, right? Thyroid imbalance, it affects the conversion of the uh, the inactive form of thyroid T4 to the active form T3. Hmm. Um, other things like um, uh, cardiovascular disease, because the high levels of insulin in the system cause a thickening and a stiffening of the endothelial lining, which is the lining of the of the blood vessels. Right. So all of these really serious and blood pressure as a result of those that endothelial thickening, we get high blood pressure. And so there's a whole sequence of things that to most people seem unrelated, perhaps, Mm -hmm. to blood sugar, because they're thinking, well, I can go, you know, between meals, and I don't feel all woozy. And, you know, my friend down the street there, yeah, she feels all woozy between meals. She probably has a blood sugar imbalance, or my, my family member has diabetes. Truth of the matter is, yes, Genetics is one of the components of it, and most people who have insulin resistance have some sort of a genetic component to it, mm-hmm. but you don't have to because the lifestyle, like the, the, the way I grew up eating, is a clear predisposing factor for insulin resistance because I ate mostly processed starches, breads, and pasta, right? Because they were cheap and we had nine kids to feed. Mm. And drinks were Kool-Aid from Mm. those little packets that cost a nickel. And then you filled the rest of it with sugar, water and sugar. So it made a beverage, right? And Mm. so the candies, because I had a grandmother who lived downstairs from us who thought children should get treats and she'd have a candy drawer. So we had free access to as much candy as we wanted. So I grew up with a diet that was not unlike most people on a standard American diet, Mm -hmm. right? These people now are a little bit more cognizant of eating fresh vegetables. We didn't. We didn't eat salads. We just had vegetables from a can. (laughs) So all of those factors lead to the overconsumption of sugar, Mm -hmm. the flooding of the bloodstream with sugar. The pancreas has to work overtime trying to produce enough insulin to get all that sugar into the cells. And over time, the the receptors for the insulin shut down because they're just like, whoa, this is too much. They're trying to protect themselves from the damaging effects of it, but also from that, we don't need any more sugar anymore. And then they shut down and then the signal isn't heard anymore. So then you might eat something with sugar in it and it takes a really long time to clear the blood of the sugar. Mm -hmm. And usually it takes so long that it gets stored as fat rather than into the cells that need it for metabolic function. And so what happens is 
that we get this influx of sugar. Pancreas just keeps creating more and more insulin, but the cells are going, no, 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 no. And, and finally, when the levels get so high, passes the threshold, there's an opening, but it's still not a full invasion, if you will, of the metabolically active cells. And so it gets stored as fat. Hmm. Great. Wow. So that's a really good overview of kind of the metabolic process um, behind blood sugar imbalance. As far as you mentioned, the four B's, right? The, um, uh, now having, now having brain fog. So belly fat, brain fog, um, burnout and blood sugar imbalance. So those are some symptoms people might experience when they have some insulin resistance going on. Do you also measure any blood work, um, to determine if someone might have something going on? Absolutely, absolutely. And one other thing I want to add to that is the craving for sugar Mm. shortly after having eaten what seems to have been a meal that should have satiated. That craving, like I need more. People walk around going, I just need a little sweet. I need a little chocolate. I need a little something for dessert. Even Mm. though they're full, Mm. that's enough. But from a from a metabolic standpoint, from looking at blood, there's a lot of things we look at. Most conventional wisdom, most conventional medical practices will look at fasting blood sugar, right? Mm-hmm. Fasting blood sugar. That's what everybody knows. Oh, my sugar's fine. It was 85, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Oh, my sugar was fine. The doctor might say it's fine, but it's 90 something. Right. So there's there's the ideal range, and then of course there's the functional range that's um, or the the lab range that's accounts for 95% of the population, which means that 95% of the population isn't healthy. So if you fall in that 95%, it doesn't mean you're healthy. It just means you're average. Mm-hmm. And I always tell people, I don't want to be average. I want to be healthy. I want to be ideal. So mm-hmm. we look at the fasting blood sugar. I look at an ideal between 75 and 85. And if a person is really ha- healthy and active, it could even go below 75 and be happy. But when it goes above 85, then it goes into some a gray area, like between 85 and 90, kind of that gray area where there's no real danger at that point, but it's suggestive of your body's losing the ability to maintain the healthy levels. And at about 90, there have been enough studies done that show that there's a massive increase in cardiovascular risk at 90 versus 85 huge difference like you know three to tenfold difference depending on what study you look at huge difference right Mm. then between 90 and 99 it goes up and it gets worse but at the magic point of 100 medicine says you have insulin resistance you have prediabetes 100 to 119 and then at 120 they say assuming it's 120 on three consecutive readings that you've got diabetes. But tell me, Dr. Ann, what's really the difference between 119 and 120 in terms of a person's risk, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So once they hit that 100 in from a medical perspective, we know they're at risk and we need to start intervening Mm -hmm. rather than waiting as most health practitioners conventionally do till they're 120. But I say, why don't we catch them at the state of pre-insulin resistance. Why don't we catch them when that blood sugar is starting to creep up in the morning, but also look at some other indicators to show that they're at risk? Because why wait until you're diagnosed with diabetes when the peripheral nerve damage and the retinal damage and the thickening of the endothelium has been happening for decades? Mm-hmm. And then suddenly you're at risk, but you've been at risk all this time and you could reverse it more easily and prevent your body from breaking down. 
Like I look at my family members, my mom and dad died suddenly of heart attacks in very young. Like my mom was 56, my dad was 64. Mm. Like that's ridiculous, right? They didn't have heart disease diagnosed, but they had clear signs of insulin resistance and they were, their lifestyle factors were predisposing it. Plus, in my later wisdom in learning about genetics and genetic testing, I've looked and seen that I have about, oh, I don't know, there's, there's lots of, there's dozens of markers for that predispose you. I've got most of them. <laughs> so they likely did too, because they passed their genetics on to me. Mm-hmm. So had I known what I know now, or had they been willing to listen to what I know now, mm-hmm. right? We could have spared them, probably those untimely deaths. Mm-hmm. We could have spared them having been subject to this silent killer for all this time and then suddenly dying when the heart just gave out and was so blocked it couldn't do it. And you lose elasticity, right? The, the, the lining of the blood vessels is supposed to be such that if you have to run down the street and there's this massive influx of blood, <coughs> that there's expand, contract, right? Expand, contract. And the way that people get into heart attack situations is they, they exert, but there's no elasticity. And then they have the plaques that build up and get stuck and doesn't make it to the, the blood doesn't make it to the heart and you have a heart attack. So it's, it's a really important thing to address. And most people, when you say, oh, blood sugar imbalance, they think, oh yeah, yeah, that's not a big deal, right? I'll just eat more often and I'll manage my blood sugar that way. Mm-hmm. But in reality, we really need to address it at the root real early on. So I look at the, that lab, but I also look at something called hemoglobin A1C, mm-hmm. which is kind of a long-term measure, three to four month measure of the average blood glucose. And that will give me an idea for a person like where their risk is. Now in conventional medicine, everybody's everybody's fine until they get to 5.6 and then 5.7 and above is insulin resistance. And then in the sixes, it goes to full-blown diabetes, right? But why wait until that point? Because at 5.6, it's telling us that the average blood glucose is somewhere in the 120 range. Mm-hmm. which means that it's way too high most of the time. Whereas um, in functional medicine, we look at it being more ideal around five. And even 4.8 to five might be that ideal. 4.5 might be, might be great. It depends on what the person's doing and how the person's feeling. If they feel great and theirs is 4.5 and they're always steady and plenty of energy, more power to you. That's a good level to be at. Mm. But five is still in the range of the average blood glucose is somewhere in the 98 range. And that's a good indicator long-term. But we don't, we can't use that to see how the changes people are making day to day are affecting them because it's not going to show a full uh, impact for about three months because it's actually what's, what they're measuring is the sugar coating of the red blood cells. And the red blood cells have uh, a lifespan of about 120 days. So those are my favorites, but here's my top favorite right? Those are, those are things that I like to do. But the top favorite is a little glucose meter mm. that people can buy for 15 bucks, at least in the US. And they can buy the little strips and there's places online at Amazon and things like that where you can buy the strips very inexpensively. Don't try to buy them at your local drugstore because they'll charge you a fortune. Um, mainly because most people that buy them have a prescription for it from their doctor mm. and they can bill the insurance. So 
as you know, the prices get jacked up when something is covered by insurance uh, from a prescription plan. So what happens is that people can measure their own blood glucose. And if you've ever heard of a glucose tolerance test, I know you have, but if your listeners have heard of a glucose tolerance test, it's where you go to the doctor's office and they feed you this big lump of sugar, like this, this <laughs> Coke syrup, basically. Mm-hmm. And then they measure your blood sugar over the next six hours continuously and they graph it and they see if you've got a normal insulin curve, insulin glucose curve. And you can do that at home. Instead of spending the day at the doctor's office having drunk this horrible sugar and measuring it across the day, you can eat your normal breakfast and measure your blood sugar over the next six hours very inexpensively using this little meter. And what that tells us is if you're in the range where you're pre- insulin resistant because for the the person who is at the point of diabetes they'll eat the food their blood sugar will go way way up you know it might go up to 160 170 180 200 at peaks at about 45 minutes somewhere between half hour and hour occasionally at about an hour and a half it keeps going up and up and up as the insulin's trying to bring it down but they they're kind of both rising at the same time and then when the insulin peaks the sugar starts to drop more dramatically. The ideal curve, it should go up about 45 minutes, hit about no more than 110, depending on what the person's eaten, and then come back down. And at two hours after they've eaten, should be back down to normal. Mm-hmm. In a diabetic, which under the conventional medical approach is, that it can go up as high as, I don't know, 140, 160 before they consider it a problem. And then it comes down, but they're saying if it's if it's at 140 or below at two hours, then you're, it's okay. you're a managed diabetic. And I'm saying it should never go above 110. And all the studies and the research shows that because all the damages that these poor diabetics that are uncontrolled suffer from, like retinopathies and, and neuropathies, those changes ha- start to happen at very low numbers, like 120. Mm-hmm. Some studies been showed like somewhere in the the range of 115 that they could see that there was some retinopathy damage to the retinal um, vessels and and nerves were happening at that level. And for sure, the the neuropathies that we think of as, you know, long-term diabetics, you've been having those happen all over is every time your blood sugar goes above 120. Mm. Okay. And then there were some studies that showed that at a hundred, at blood sugar of a hundred, there was a little bit of beta cell damage. Beta cells are the cells in the pancreas that produce insulin. And so that's a contributing factor, obviously, to diabetes, especially when people have had high levels of insulin and developed insulin resistance, and then the pancreas fails. Mm. Can't do it anymore. Well, it's been failing all along, guys. It didn't just start to fail at 120, (laughs) Mm -hmm. right? That's why I'm so passionate about it, because we can see uh, stop endless suffering, but also the results of I've seen people. I have seen people just flourish who had been struggling for a long time to drop weight or who had a family history of diabetes and they were told, oh, you're pre-diabetic at 119. We don't know what to tell you, but come back in six months. And if you're diabetic, we have medication for it, right? Right. And that person went on to lose 110 pounds going through this process, drops her fasting blood sugar to around 80, right? 
And guess what? Side effects. <coughs> Her Hashimoto's goes away. Mm. She'd been on thyroid medication for 70 years. She was, no, 50 years because she was 65. So on, on thyroid medication for 50 years for her Hashimoto's, suddenly it's gone. She's off medication at age 65. So these are the magical things that happen for people. And I know that a lot of practitioners struggle with like what to do with some of these chronic cases and are overlooking this thing that they can do for everybody to help them improve their health. Sure. So you mentioned the um, the meters, right? So from yes. a practical perspective, do you have everyone who goes through your program monitor their blood sugar, or how do how do you have them assess if what they're eating is appropriate in uh, in terms of um, affecting their blood sugar? That's a very good question. And yes, I encourage everybody that goes through the program to get their own meter and measure. And I would say we've probably got ninety percent compliance. Mm. That they and they love it. Even when they're scared, they go, I don't want to go I'm scared. Once they start, I always tell them, you know what? Everybody says that, and then they get addicted to it. And once you see it, and you could start to see the impact of the food mm-hmm. on your physiology like that, mm-hmm. you're excited. You're going to want to test everything. Oh, let me test this. Let me try this. Let me do this. Right? And that's what they do. Mm-hmm. And they, they get obsessive about it. So I like that. I also give them a list of symptoms to really, really do some conscious eating and monitoring of their bodies. Mm-hmm. And some people can actually say, oh yeah, I think my sugar went up. But here's the reason I like to get the blood sugar tested. I've had people who say, oh yeah, I periodically have these like hypoglycemic incidences where I just, I'm woozy and I'm irritable and I've got to eat. Mm-hmm. And we've had the measure and it turned out that they were feeling that way when their blood sugar was super high, mm-hmm. not when it because when it was super high and they weren't able to get all that sugar into the cells, that constant flood of insulin in the system was causing them to be hungry. Like, get this, I want more. I need the, I need the sugar, right? Mm-hmm. So that's what I found to be so, so amazing with this is that I, I had one person, she was steady, she was steady, she was testing all these things and suddenly she tested and her sugar shot up to 220. Mm-hmm. And she talked and all she'd eaten was a salad same salad she'd eaten before, but she'd thrown a handful of raisins on. Oh. That's sensitive that the raisins shot it up. And she said, it was interesting because remember I told you about how I was, this hypoglycemic situations would happen to me periodically and I didn't know what caused it. Mm-hmm. It wasn't hypoglycemia. It was hyperglycemia, too much blood sugar. Wow. So all these surprising things that come out, like people think blueberries are a good food because they actually have some chemicals in that help with insulin sensitivity. Mm-hmm. And they are for most people. Mm-hmm. But for those sensitive few that would think that blueberries are great and they're eating blueberries all the time, right? For a whole subset, <laughs> I would say probably 20% of the people that I've seen test have a sensitivity to all fruit, including blueberries. Mm. And what we do is we take them through a 30-day process of keeping their blood sugar down below 110 all the time. So whatever foods you've tested in the period before the 30 days, and they raise your blood sugar, you're not allowed to have them in this 30-day period that along with other facts, because it's not just food, it's about stress, it's about sleep, it's about um, movement, and it's about the timing of all these things. So we work on all those aspects. So for 30 days, they're keeping everything nice and steady. And what happens at the end is then they can go back and retest some of the healthier foods they've removed, like the blueberries if need be, or like you know a peach or whatever. 
and we see what they can tolerate. And the, for the most part, depending on how long the person's been in the situation, for the most part, they're much more um, sensitive to glucose, to insulin after that, and they're able to tolerate a lot of new foods. There are cases where people have been diabetic for a long time, and we have to go for longer. And I teach the practitioners who take the program exactly how to monitor people and how to manage the food reintroduction phase and how to apply the supplementation and herbs and things that can help support this and timing and all that. This is all critical. And stress is one of the most important things. Because guess what? I call it the candy bar eating effects of cortisol. <laughs> when you get stressed out, your body produces a hormone called cortisol from your adrenals to try to manage that and get you away from the tigers or the bears that are supposedly chasing you. Mm-hmm. And when there's not a tiger or bear chasing you, you're just stewing at your desk, then your blood sugar goes up because your body's getting ready for fight, flight, run away. And mm-hmm. so the blood sugar mobilizes stores, usually from protein stores. It could be from the liver glycogen stores, but the, the gluconeogenesis that's triggered by the cortisol usually likes to break down amino acids. So it could be that your thigh muscles are being mobilized to get away from the tiger. Your blood sugar goes up, but then there's no tiger and you're sitting at your desk and there's nothing to do with all that sugar so it gets stored back as belly fat. Mm-hmm. So I kind of jokingly tell people it's the candy bar eating effect of cortisol that causes your thighs to be turned into be- belly fat. Oh. And everybody goes, oh, I don't want that. I don't <laughs> want that. What do I do instead? And I tested my own self this way where I usually have really good stress management techniques. I use something called heart math, like to breathing and appreciation. And I was just lost it. Like I wasn't going to my techniques and I was just yelling and getting upset. And I was curious. I said, I wonder what my blood sugar is like right now. And I tested my blood sugar and it was 156. Wow. It's like, okay. And I had to like calm down and lay down and meditate and bring it down. But the other thing people can do if you do get into that stressful situation and you know your blood sugar is going up is movement, mm. exercise, yep. because you've got all that sugar in your blood. You might as well use it. You can run up and down the stairs or, you know, jog in place or go outside for a run or something like that. Mm. Fantastic. So you mentioned um, a lot of the uh, lab work, blood work that you do. So, you know, the fasting blood glucose, the A1C, um, and the glucose meters. Do you also use insulin in your practice as a a marker? Yes, thank you. Thank you. Um, I do. I often do. We we can't test it the way we do the sugars. I'd love to have a meter that tested insulin and blood sugar because then we could see what's going on there. But I like to see their fasting insulin, which I think should be three, like between two and three. Very tight margin of what it should be. And I also like to see, especially, I don't always run this because it's harder to run, but I like to see if they're having difficulties, like, okay, what's your postprandial Mm -hmm. insulin? Like what is your insulin at 45 minutes after a meal, which means you have to get it tested fasting and then go eat, sit in the parking lot, eat and go back in the lab and get tested 45 minutes later. So it's a little bit more cumbersome for folks to do, but it tells us a lot and because it can differentiate us between true type 2 diabetes or insulin resistance where the fasting insulin might be fine, but after they eat, it's going way up, right? Mm-hmm. So we that. But also sometimes when people aren't responding, especially if somebody's been on like an oral diabetic medicine and they're not responding, then I look at what's their postprandial. And if their postprandial is not going up, 
Like it's three fasting and it's also three after they've eaten or five after they've eaten. Then my concern is that the pancreas isn't producing. And if it's somebody who has been misdiagnosed as type two diabetic, I'm looking for something called latent autoimmune diabetes in adults called LADA. Some people call it type one and a half diabetes, which is an autoimmune diabetes of adulthood where eventually the pancreas is broken down because there's antibodies attacking it. Mm. So I want to differentiate between those two things. There's a lot of similarities in the way we look at it and treat it, but we also might be doing some autoimmune protocols to help restore balance if we discover that that's the issue, right? And the other thing we want to differentiate is between LADA, latent autoimmune diabetes of adults, and pancreatic failure due to long-term, you know, damage to the and from the pancreas from inflammation or just overwork. So if I test them and their fasting insulin is say three, but their postprandial is four or five, and it should be more like 10 or so, um, then I'm going to say, and then I'm going to test the antibodies. And if they don't have positive antibodies, so saying that they have the autoimmune, then I'm looking at that it it possibly is just this failure and we're going to treat it a little bit differently. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. So it gets a lot more complicated, right? Um, Yeah. So as far as, have you ever had patients who were on medications, diabetes medications for a long time, and they're highly resistant, and were you able to reverse their uh, insulin sensitivity and make it so that they didn't need medications anymore and that their blood sugar was regulated? Absolutely. Is it possible? It's totally possible. It's totally possible. We had one guy, when I first discovered LADA, was with this one guy who I'm like, he doesn't look like a type 2 diabetic, and he's explaining what's going on, and they want to put him on insulin, and he's on three oral diabetic medications, and he's still maintaining fasting blood sugars in 220, and they're threatened to put him on insulin. We start looking at it. I said, I, I want to do this autoimmune panel on you, and we did the autoimmune panel, and sure enough, he had a lot of, and I put him on some autoimmune panel stuff and, and also got his diet shifted, took out some of the allergens and took out some of the high glycemic foods he was still inadvertently eating. And I said to him, I said, you're on three oral, oral diabetic medications. I said, you got to watch this because you, you can end up with very low blood sugars. Mm-hmm. And if that happens, you got to get right to the doctor and decrease the doses of those medications. So um, he calls me up about five days into the, the working together and he says, you said that and I just poo-pooed you. My blood sugar this morning was 70. And I'm like, whoa, normally it's 220 when I wake up in the morning. I'm like, okay. So um, he ended up working with his doctor to reverse that. He didn't work with me long enough to know how, if he got off all of it completely, because he was one of these high stress exec types. He signed up for a six week program or whatever, and he got everything he did. He goes, okay, I'm fine. He went, his hemoglobin A1C, he wanted to redo it at six weeks. I'm like, it's not going to really change much. You're going to be disappointed. He had started out with an A1C of 11. And in six weeks, it was 7.1. Wow. In six weeks, Mm -hmm. right? So he was thrilled and he said, I know what to do now. I'm just going to go do it. 
<laughs> I, you know, he never followed up. I never followed up with him. But I have other people who've done my group program and they come in with their diabetic. They've been in fasting blood sugar at 220 or 330 or something like that. And within a week, they're bringing them down. Sometimes, you know, in the low 100s, but sometimes actually below 100. And I'm working with somebody right now who's been really a challenge because she's got a lot of other complicating situations. But she is now. <laughs> At, she'd been on metformin for many, many, many years, is off the metformin, and her fasting blood sugars are now about 85. Sometimes it goes into the 90s, but around 85. And her peak is usually, she said, oh, it's still peaking higher than I wanted. I said, where? She said, oh, sometimes 115 to 125. I said, well, that's your peak? You know, we're doing really well here. So it does happen. Sometimes it takes more patience and diligence. And then there's the people who like have the immediate turnaround. It just depends on where their pancreas is at and all Exactly. And what da- where the damage is to mm. a lot of the different parts of their body. Yeah, exactly. So I'm curious about LADA because this is something new to me. You know, how is that different from a type 1 diabetes situation where, you know, the, the pancreas is slowly mal- malfunctioning and eventually stops working? Um, is LADA or 1.5 diabetes, is that reversible at, versus the type 1 where it really isn't? Yeah, so it's it's somewhere between a cross. Don't know about the reversible piece because haven't worked with enough people long term, and I don't think it's really been around long enough for us to know long term. Mm. But what it, the difference is is that it, the onset is much later. Usually, someone with the type one diabetes, it shows up much earlier, yep. and also the presentation. Most people with LADA, people they get like right away, it's like, oh yeah, you have insulin resistance, you have type 2 diabetes, even though it doesn't kind of fit, because usually people are diagnosed with type 2 diabetes after a really, you know, an arduous history of long-standing, you know, insulin resistance for a long time. But this tends to show up in people um, in young adulthood to middle adulthood, or even later adulthood, where suddenly things aren't working. And we discover that there's antibodies. So still there's antibody damage. It might be more reversible than type 1 just because of the later onset of the antibody activity. And I don't know that there's been enough research to see, like, because you can't go back in time (laughs) to see if you took that person who didn't manifest it until they were 35 or 45, like, if they had tested some of their numbers, like A1Cs and all, younger, what would have happened? Because... <clears throat> the matter is, nobody tests an A1C in somebody unless they think that there's a problem. Nobody tests fasting insulin in anyone unless they think there's a problem. And personally, I think those should become part of a routine blood screen mm-hmm. that even kids should be having, right? Teenagers, right. you know, maybe not every year, but on a regular basis. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, so then, as far as um, as far as m- markers, right? We talked about insulin. Is hSCRP something that you look at as well? Absolutely, absolutely. So any inflammatory markers. So um, a CRP, and it's interesting because it's like which came first, the chicken or the egg kind of situation. Did we have an elevation in CRP and other inflammatory markers? There's other things that are elevated, TNF-alpha and IL-6 and a whole lot of others that are elevated. They're actually produced by fat sometimes that 
will damage the receptors and then we become insulin resistant? Or is the insulin resistance and the high blood sugars and the high insulin showing, uh, you know, elevating that? So yes, but if somebody has some other kind of systemic inflammation, um, some cardiovascular um, inflammation or even uh, long-term viral and, and bacterial infections can cause an elevation of that, then that can actually damage the receptors and lead to insulin resistance. So it's, um, I'm doing a, a research paper now and, and a talk in about a month on really looking at the autoimmune implications and what does that mean in all the inflammatory markers. Yeah. Oh, I look forward to that. Um, as far as we were talking about autoimmune and you were saying you're, you run an autoimmune panel and some people, if you suspect a lot of, what autoimmune um, antibodies are you looking at? Is it just, you know, ANA or are there any other specific antibodies that you're looking for? Yeah, actually not ANA, although that would be a good incidental um, finding. But really what I'm looking at is anti-islet cell antibodies. Islet cells are the the beta cells that produce that, uh, the, the insulin. Uh, anti-insulin antibodies, <coughs> anti-GAD antibodies, and then C-peptide. Mm. Those four that I run. Okay. There's now evidence in some studies, very relatively recent studies, that type 2 diabetes may be an autoimmune diabetes uh, as well. Mm. And they're finding some anti-insulin receptor antibodies and effects of, of that on the presentation. That's oh, wow. Really so this is a very specific panel for, for yes. a, a diabetes, um, yeah, insulin type, um, diabetes type, pancreas type, autoimmune antibodies. Absolutely. And it's expensive. So if somebody doesn't have good insurance or they don't want to lay out the money for it, typically what I'll do is I'll do the fasting insulin and then the postprandial just to see. If I do a fasting insulin and a postprandial comes out to be 30 or 50 or their fasting is actually high, like I won't even bother with the postprandial. If somebody comes out with a fasting insulin of 15, mm -hmm. then I know it's not LADA or type 1, right? I know that that's a, an insulin resistance hyperinsulinemia situation. If it comes back with a, a normal normal, decent um, post-pre-fasting uh, insulin, then I will look at the postprandial. And if the postprandial is not going up that much, and I'll tell them, eat the highest carbohydrate meal that you ever eat. I don't, I don't subject people to the stress of like eating sugar if they don't normally do it. But what's this, the highest carbohydrate meal that you are going to eat and see what happens? And if that doesn't really go up, mm -hmm. then I'm thinking the lot of them, I'll, I'll have them run the tests. Sure. And maybe not the whole panel if we're trying to figure it out, but we may end up doing the whole panel one at a time if they're trying to save their pocketbook and they have to go in and get their blood taken multiple times. Yeah. So as far as treatment goes, I mean, thinking about um, having a, uh, you know, nutrition that uh, has a neutral impact or doesn't really throw off your blood sugar up and down would probably be the first step. But as far as the latter goes, there's probably other herbs and things that you do to help with the autoimmune com component of things. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and actually, you know, my first step used to be reducing the insulin requirement. But what I found was that so many people have so many cravings for those high carb foods that I 
put a step before that, which was increase insulin sensitivity by putting them on some herbs and nutrients mm. like chromium and DHA and magnesium and berberine and things like that to actually increase the sensitivity of their insulin receptors. And then we move into, okay, we got to get you off this, off this, off this. And then they find that they're able to do it more easily because the cravings aren't intense. So I, I reversed the steps mm. just probably about five years ago, I decided to reverse those steps because I was getting so much, oh, white knuckling and I can't do this. It's so hard. Right. So we'll try taking some chromium or try taking some berberine or whatever. And they would have an effect. So we have a list of herbs. We have the list of foods. We have the list of supplements that can help with this. But then if we're looking at a lot of situation, we're looking at, okay, what do we do for autoimmune? And there's some standard stuff that I will do to work with somebody with an autoimmune condition, regardless of whether it's thyroid or lupus or rheumatoid arthritis. We want to look at reducing the stress, getting the, the gut healed, looking for toxic metals, looking for all the stressors on the body and doing that and really replenishing their antioxidants. Mm, that makes perfect sense. Um, yeah, it's, it's much easier to get somebody to take action when they don't have to work against willpower. You know, exactly. When, you know, exactly. You got it. So as far as, you know, you work, you want to work with people who are kind of at that cusp, who are, you know, maybe pre-diabetes or they, they have elevated blood sugars, uh, fasting blood sugars, and, and they want to do something about it. Like from my experience, like those are p people that are difficult to find because they're really not maybe aware or they're not really, you know, their doctor told, told them they don't have to worry about it until a certain number. So how do, yeah. you, how do you find these people to work with or how do you convince them that to take action now before it's too late? Okay, so I approach it from, uh, when I do webinars, I'll do a webinar for the, the public called Bye-Bye uh, belly, uh, belly Fat Brain Fog and Burnout. Mm. Like, who doesn't have belly fat, brain fog, and burnout? At least one of those. So they want to know what can they do. Mm. And then I introduce them to the concept of insulin and how it affects them and how they may have a problem long before the numbers. And the intelligent person, the, the proactive person who I want to work with is mm. going to say, oh, I don't want that to happen to me. And they join and they're ready to go. So I would say in my program, we have a mix. We have a, a small percentage of people who are already diabetic. That's a small percentage. Mm -hmm. We have um, a little bit larger percentage who are already pre-diabetic, you know, the 100 to 119 range. And then we have a whole bunch of people who have normal fasting blood sugars, but they can't get rid of the belly fat. They're exhausted. They're brain fogged. Um, they may have chronic inflammatory conditions. They have other things and they want their energy back. And they hear about this and they go, oh, well, maybe that's my problem right? And they start to test and they realize, oh yes, this is my problem. So the program, the way we do the program can help anybody. So even if they discover that they're not at the point of insulin resistance yet, or even pre-insulin resistance, doing a reset can help if they've been on kind of a diet that's more conventional for a long time. And just knowing how to eat in a way that doesn't put such a load on, right? A young person's going to be more um, flexible in terms of their response. So it, nobody should be eating sugar and high fructose corn syrup and hydrogenated fats. And most people are going to benefit from eating more greens and omega-3 fats and, you know, getting good protein. Mm -hmm. So it really helps them and it structures them in such a way of creating a healthy diet lifestyle to either reverse what's going on right now or to prevent the complications in the future. Sure. 
So um, you kind of talked a little bit about your program, but I thought maybe you could share a little bit more detail of, you know, how long is the program for practitioners? How is it structured? What are the types of modules that you walk them through? Um, just give us a better idea of, the, of the, the insulin resistance program that you've got coming up. Sure, absolutely. I'd love to. Um, the program can be taken at your own pace because there's pre-recorded modules with audio, video, slides, and transcripts. So you, we're hitting all the learning styles. Mm. You can watch those at your own pace. We have uh, calls. We have monthly calls and we actually give you access to five months of monthly calls with me where even after you've gone through all the materials and you're starting to put this into practice, you can come and ask me questions about cases and to help you with the labs to make sure you're doing it right. Mm. So we do that. And then during this launch period, we're adding extra calls. So there'll actually be two calls a month for the first three months. Mm. And there's a, an online forum, and I'm monitoring that all the time, and other practitioners in not only that program, but other programs with me who have been through it before and are going through it at the same time can answer questions. So there's a, a tremendous amount of giving and sharing in that forum, so it's a great way to go. We go through modules. We start with kind of the overview. How do you know, you know if this is an issue for people and just general pr principles? And that most people, most people get that, but there's some nuances there, and I want to make sure we're all starting at the same place. We then go into an assessment module where I teach how to look at the labs. What are all the labs? There are other labs that people can look at as well that are not directly related to the, uh, the, the pancreas and the blood sugar, like you mentioned CRP and there's a few others. Mm -hmm. So I go through the labs, talk to them about LADA, talk to them about that so they really get that. And then we... Ask, uh, teach them how to do the blood sugar testing and how to teach their patients. So we have a whole page on that with videos of me poking the finger and then the graphs and how to graph it. So I teach them in depth how they do it and we recommend they do it for themselves and then how do they teach that to their patients. Mm -hmm. And then we go through the lifestyle modules. So I, I break it down into five lifestyle areas that get out of balance. Obviously the food and nutrition, right? Mm -hmm. um, fitness, sleep, stress, and then timing. So all of those are, each one of those is a module. And the shocking part about it that most people don't get is how much sleep impacts insulin sensitivity. Mm -hmm. There have been a number of studies that shown that even in a healthy person, one night of bad sleep can create a temporary insulin resistance the next day. So I always tell people, if you have to stay up all night, you're pulling an all-nighter, that's you know what you do, you have a sick kid, is the next day be super, super careful about what you're eating because mm -hmm. your body's not going to handle sugar very well until you replenish your sleep. But think about the average person who has night after night, week after week, month after month of poor sleep, shift workers, people who are just getting four to six hours of sleep a night. It's a huge piece. And if you just address the food and don't address the other areas, then you're not going to get the same results. Yeah, there's going to be some people where food is the primary piece and you just do the food and you're great. There's other people who do all the food stuff, but they're not seeing the same results and you're having to look at stress. So we teach them about stress and how to teach that. And I give all the science behind this for practitioners and studies so that they get it mm -hmm. and understand why this is happening. And then we have an implementation module where it's like, how do you actually take people through a 30 day metabolic reset to reset the insulin sensitivity? We also have a marketing module where I give people an actual presentation that I put together a slideshow, a PowerPoint where they can use, they can just take it and use my slides and don't have to give me credit for it. Take them and 
put it apart, use what they want, and teach in your community because community education is such a big piece of getting people on it, and then they can offer to help people through it either one-on-one or in, in groups. So we get that, and then um, – they get access to a program that I put together that I take my clients through. It's called Before Be Gone because the four Bs. So Before Be Gone, they'll, uh, blood sugar balancing program. So they get access to all the materials from that. So they see exactly how I put people through. And then we also have a certification that's a, a, that can be applied if somebody wants to have that you know, blood sugar balancing insulin resistance coach certificate. They have to do case studies and submit them, and there's a couple of hoops you have to run through. There are exam- tests at the end of each module to make sure you really get all the, the concepts in each one. Wow. Sounds like a very comprehensive program. It is. Yeah. yeah. And it's several months. It's not something that you just, you know, take and you're an expert. You have to you know, learn it, digest it, you know, practice it, you know, practice. yes, and ask questions and, and, and really learn it before you can apply it too. Yeah, because it's like every people are not patients aren't textbooks, right? Mm-hmm. So you learn how this thing is going to be, but then somebody presents with, well, this doesn't make sense. They have this, this, and this. So they can come to me. I've got 25 years of doing this. So I've seen most things. And if I, if they come to me with something that stumps me, mm-hmm. then I'm going to go to research and figure it out. But mm-hmm. um, most of the time they don't stump me. They just, it's just a matter of experience, right? right? Yeah. yeah. Perfect. So where can they find information about this program? I know you said you've got, a, I think, a webinar coming up and just with yep. the links to the, to the program. Yes, I have a webinar and I also have some free gifts that, you know, free downloadables and handouts and things that are helpful. And it's at, let's see, drritamarie.com, which is my main website, drritamarie, and then uh, slash go, G-O, slash insulin. And that's how you can find that webinar. Perfect. And generally, if you go to Google and you type in Dr. Rita Marie Insulin, mm-hmm. it'll, you'll figure it out. You'll find plenty of stuff because I've been doing it long enough that I've got some good Google rankings on it. Perfect. And I'll make sure to um, post those in the show notes for people to access as well. So oh, thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Rita Marie, for sharing your knowledge and expertise. I, you know, I can pick your brain forever. You've got so much information to share. So. <laughs> Thank you. I really appreciate you coming, in, coming on, and I hope that people who are interested really take advantage of this program because um, I know all of your programs are excellent, and you put so much uh, of your wisdom into these programs. So I think anyone who wants to go through it will benefit from it. So I highly encourage you to look into it if that's something you're interested in. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Yes, enjoy your day. Hey, so I hope you enjoyed the show. All the links and resources mentioned today are in the show notes at drann.com, spelled A-N-H as in healthy. And while you're there, remember to hop on the Food as Medicine VIP email list and you'll get my free gift. It's the Clean Eating Rules and it's everything that I learned about nutrition when I was on my bodybuilding journey, which happens to be contrary to many of the things I learned in school. And it's really my number one guide from my experience for how to eat to lose weight, improve your biometrics, and get more energy. You'll also get all my favorite pearls from the show. And this show can be a bit technical at times with lots of details about what foods to eat, what foods to avoid, as well as what supplements to take and in what dosages, etc. So if you're anything like me, you're probably listening to this while driving, cooking, running some errands around the house, walking the dog, etc. And you really aren't in a position to be jotting down notes of all the great information that's shared by the guest. So I've taken all the notes for you. And by hopping on my email list, you'll get all the show pearls delivered right to your inbox so you can refer back to them at any time.
Finally, as a VIP email subscriber, you'll get the occasional love letters from me, which are emails sharing some of my favorite recipes and products, upcoming events, new information that I've learned, and just other goodies. So go to DrAnn.com now and enter your name and email address. Did you like this episode? Then remember to subscribe so you'll never miss an episode and leave us a review. This will really help us with the iTunes rankings and help more people find the show. Remember to tell all your friends because we need more people to hear the food as medicine message. We've got plenty of great guests coming up, so stay tuned. Thanks so much for stopping by. And until next time, remember to eat consciously because the world needs a healthy and vibrant you. Hey, so I hope you enjoyed the show. All the links and resources mentioned today are in the show notes at Dr.